Well, this is about love and friendship in Hamlet. As Joe said, I've been working on, uh, on Hamlet of late. I wrote a book about Hamlet, Murder Most Foul, about the whole history of Hamlet down through the ages. But this is focusing on this particular topic. Uh, it's an interesting topic to, to, uh, to go back a little bit to think about the earlier plays, the romantic comedies of the 1590s, uh, generally end you know, with, with marriage and uh, with a heterosexual, uh, presumably a happy marriage. But we don't see many portraits of marriage as such, uh, certainly, not, certainly not ones that are blissfully happy, but the prospect, at least, of getting married the, and, and, the, and the reality of falling in love are very real and as you like it, both night, what to do about nothing, Merchant of Venice, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, and right on through those comedies of the 1590s. When you get around 1590, he wrote Hamlet about uh, the end of the decade, 1599, 1600. That's about the time he's moving into Julius Caesar, to Troilus and Cressida, into problem plays, and, uh, and Hamlet. So uh, it's not surprising, I suppose, when you think of these developmental terms, that comedy, which is, of course, there's always been a, a shadow lurking. There's always the threat of slander, as in Much Ado About Nothing, of disloyalty, which proves to be illusory as far as women are concerned. But, it, uh, but, but there's always a happy ending in a mar march to the altar. And uh, that changes with Troilus and Cressida, of course, rather, rather uh, radically. And, uh, and in Hamlet, we have, uh, what I want to do is talk about contrasting images in, both, in the plays of both love and friendship and see how they're paired off. With, with love, we have, uh, most of all, I think, the memory, and it's Hamlet's memory, of his family's, his mother's and father's relationship. Now, it doesn't matter whether we know that this was as nice as he represents it. The important thing is that for him, they were a, a really happy couple. Happy partly because the father was so solicitous, so caring. Heaven and earth must I remember, he says, why he would, uh, she would hang in him as, as if the crease of appetite had grown to what it fed on. And he would not beteem the winds of heaven to visit her face too roughly. Isn't that a lovely image of a, of a man who just uh, makes every effort to be solicitous, tender, caring, and so on. And then this turns up in the uh, play within the play, The Murder of Gonzago, which if you remember, uh, Hamlet instructs the visiting players to put on for him, which is primarily to test the, 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 the uh, question of the guilt of Claudius about the murder. But it's obvious that he's after something else too, and he does when he speaks to the, to the first player. He says, you could for a for, for an occasion to uh, memorize a, a dozen or 16 lines to set down that I would write for you to put in the play, could you not? The first player says, yes, of course, that's, we're professionals, we do that sort of thing. So it's a lot of fun. It's, of course, entirely speculative to think about what it might have been in that wonderful play that uh, put on before Claudius in the court um, that Hamlet may have written. But my candidate, at any rate, it has to do with Gertrude rather than with uh, Claudius or with the murder itself, that is the, por the portion that he, right before we get into the murder, we have a lengthy discourse between the player king and the player queen who represent the equivalent of, of Hamlet Sr. and Gertrude in Hamlet's mind, I take it, before the murder occurred. But there's the same solicitude. The, the father describes himself as aging, and he says to his wife, I will not be with you very much longer, and I want you to understand, it's a wonderfully compassionate and generous thing for him to say, I understand, I understand that you will, you will find somebody else probably, and I, I don't want you to worry about that. There's nothing wrong with that. That's natural enough. And she says, oh, 
you know, she goes into paroxysms of, of self-denial about that, that she would, uh, she would uh, never do such a thing, which promotes Hamlet, who's offering asides while he's listening to all this, uh, to say, oh, if she, would she, if she would break it now, <laughs> or uh, turning to his mother and saying, Madam, how like you uh, the play? And uh, she says, and thinks the lady doth protest too much. <laughs> Um, Hamlet uh, likes that response. I think we do too. But uh, what sh what she says that um, with the, that I would have to die before I would do anything like that. So what we get is an interesting portrait in that marriage of a man who is older, wiser. I take it, who understands uh, human nature and its frailties and can account for that and doesn't expect things that are not necessarily going to happen. Uh, he's just quite a realist, as opposed to his wife who has a kind of a denial and a kind of an image in her head about uh, lo everlasting loyalty, which of course promotes in Hamlet throughout the play this terrific misogyny of frailty, thy name is woman, he says. Uh, the, the prospect of his mother marrying so quickly after the death of her husband, even before he knows that it was a murder by her own brother-in-law that did, that did the, the, the deed, that just the marriage itself is enough to cause him to uh, be in deep mourning for the human race and especially for women, and he turns on Ophelia, of course, in the same spirit. Get thee to a nunnery. Why wouldst thou be a breeder of sinners? Uh, and uh, and and obviously their marriage is on the rocks too. Partly it was a result of this, all this difficulty. But that's not the only thing, of course, that is bothering the relationship with uh, Hamlet with Ophelia. It's her father, at least as that's the way Polonius um, behaves himself and the way Hamlet sees this. We see, of course. Polonius offering advice to his daughter as well as to his son. He's a very worldly man and he offers very worldly advice. I'll come to his son in a moment because that's the, sub the subject there is really friendship. But in terms of love, he has much to say to Ophelia and it's pretty much the same thing as, as Laertes says too to his sister, which is be careful. If you lose your virginity, you will be uh, you'll have the market value of absolutely zero. No one will ever marry you, not, not a courtier. You might as well go to a nunnery. There, there's that get they do a nunnery line uh, running throughout the play. Uh, of course, this is true. We all know that this was characteristic of, um, of the Elizabethan court generally. Elizabeth uh, was uh, quite uh, went into paroxysms about uh, her leading ladies if they had affairs or got pregnant or married without her permission. Uh, it was a very tight ship that way at court, and it was very, mu very much a cutthroat, cutthroat game. And it was unquestionably true that a young lady who surrendered her virginity would just have to retire from that world, whatever she would do with herself. You look at Much Ado About Nothing, we get that picture too, and Hero in Much Ado About Nothing is accused falsely, in this case, of, of, of sleeping around the night before her marriage and before. Uh, when her father believes that to be the case and so on, his determination is that she might as well go off to a nunnery. That's about the, the, the prospect that a woman of class would have for, for such, a trans, trans, such a transgression. So, uh, so and Ophelia gives back her, the letters and tokens and so on to Hamlet at her father's instruction because he doesn't trust her. Now there's a lot to that, of course, isn't there? That is, again, not only with the very fast court of Queen Elizabeth or courts in general, but there is, uh, as... Um, as is said of, of Hamlet, he may not uh, carve for himself, that's Polonius's phrase, he can't simply go out and marry anybody because he's the crown prince and his marriage will have to be constricted by the need for uh, kind of royal marriages. Of course, went on during this whole period as uh, under Henry VIII, marrying, uh, his marrying Catherine of Aragon after his brother died and, uh, and Henry VII marrying all of his children to members of royalty in the succeeding kingdom in, in, in 
attached kingdoms and so on, because that's the way you build alliances at court. So uh, that's a set up against another be very beautiful idea, isn't it? When, a, when, a, when at the graveyard of Ophelia, when she's dead and being buried, the queen is there and she said, I hope thou would have been my Hamlet's wife. That's a beautiful, and there's that same image. And they, so that the idea of romantic marriage and of happy, long-lasting relationships in Hamlet turns out to be a thing of the past. Or, or uh, something, and imagine of something that might have been, and, it, and there's no way that it's ever going to happen. But w when Gertrude says that, we realize she's being uh, unrealistic about it. But it's nice. I'm glad she thinks that way. It's a really lovely thought. Could she and, uh, and Hamlet have been happy together? Who's to say? We don't get a chance to know because the whole weight of the world and courtly tradition and arrangement of marriages and that so on just militates against it to the point uh, that it's, I mean, that Romeo and Juliet doesn't have, they have nothing to worry about by comparison with, uh, with Hamlet and Ophelia. So, so marriage is uh, clearly an endangered species and the thing of the past. The more present marriage would be seen, for example, in Claudius' relationship to Gertrude. Now, that can be portrayed as very passionate. There's one film version, the, the one with, uh, uh, with uh, uh, Glenn Close is <laughs> as Gertrude and uh, and um, Alan um, Alan Bates uh, as Hamlet, which well, she's clearly gone on her husband. She's very passionate about him. She's sexually pleased to be with him. You don't have to play it that way. In fact, I wouldn't choose myself to direct it that way. I think there's more consi consideration that she's married her brother because his brother is a very important man. He explains that the kingdom is in peril because of a threatened. Uh, Norwegian invasion, and the kingdom is about to collapse, and so on. And a, a royal marriage of the, uh, the dowager widow with the succeeding king would provide a kind of a continuity and stability that uh, would, would otherwise not be would not be available. So uh, you get that in Oedipus the King, of course. After all, it's a very old story. Oedipus marrying uh, Jocasta, who is. The, the widow of the man he succeeds, also it turns out to be his mother. <laughs> um, so, of course, I mean, that whole story of Hamlet and Oedipus uh, hangs over this play of Hamlet very, very strongly, doesn't it? But they, that marriage of Claudius and Gertrude, from Hamlet's point of view, is incestuous. It's and also from the point of view of the ghost. It's interesting to trace that word down. It's used several times in the play, always either by Hamlet or by his father's ghost. That adulterate, that incestuous beast, that one with his will, my most virtuous, seeming, my most seeming virtuous queen, is what the ghost says about this. And Hamlet, as in fact, when he's killing Hamlet at the very, uh, excuse me, killing Claudius in the very final scene of the play, he says, "Then thou incestuous, damned Dane." Uh, follow, follow my mother into the grave as he stabs him. And, uh, and uh, so the word incestuous is used quite, uh, as I say, always by those two speakers and throughout the play. And it's an interesting thing what that means. We wouldn't normally think of marriage uh, between uh, a, a man and, uh, and the deceased, the wife of this deceased incumbent uh, as, uh, as incestuous, even, even if it's in the family. Uh, there was, of course, something very parallel to this since 19th century Britain, uh, in the time of Gladstone and so on, throughout most of the 19th century, as a matter of fact, the British Parliament was tied in knots about what was called marriage with deceased wife's sister. It turns up in Gilbert and Sullivan, for example, one of the problems that this worry about there. And I take it that the point was that the, the, the church, certainly, the English church, incest is, can be defined in various different ways. And the English church, uh, throughout the centuries, in fact, tends to define this as incestuous. But I think it because 
There was the worry that if, since there were a lot of um, sort of large families with uh, sisters of the wife living with her, with unmarried sisters living with, with a married uh, sister and so on in the family, that if, um, if a man were uh, to be able to consider the possibility, perhaps later on in case his wife died, of course women died so often in childbirth during this time, that if another wife, if there's another sister there, well that'd be very convenient, wouldn't it? It's the sort of thing that Dickens uh, had very much in mind as he was um, in love with various uh, sisters of the people, of the, of the woman he married. So, uh, so I think it's fair enough that this can be considered a kind of incest. And it casts, uh, if you see the play from Hamlet's point of view, a very dark shadow over that present marriage. So there's no image in the play of Hamlet of a, of a marriage that is successful and no prospect of one that's going to work. And it does tend to p pit the, the real present against the imaginary past as something that seems to have disappeared. That goes with other images about Hamlet Sr. He's, again, we see him almost entirely from Hamlet's point of view. Not entirely, because we, he does come on stage, he talks, he talks to his son. He's a very interesting man, isn't he? It appears to be true that he was very solicitous of his wife, that he was a very gallant, protective, and noble husband. And he also was a great warrior. That again contrasts him with Claudius. What we learned about Hamlet Sr. is that he had involved himself in a, what we might think of as a reckless sort of you take, winner take all contest with the King of Norway. We'll, we'll duke it out, the two of us, and so on, man, mano a mano, and whoever wins gets the whole of the two kingdoms. Now, doesn't that sound like a reckless kind of foreign policy? <laughs> um, but it, it's held up by Hamlet, I think. Or in fact, it's, a, it's a Horatio who was talking about this at the time, as, a, as an image of a kind of a Viking hero, somebody who stands tall in the table and the saddle, somebody from the past who is really uh, has, a, has a kind of a genius. Of, um, of being a great warrior and a great uh, chivalrous figure. You take Claudius, it's an interesting contest because it's not as though simple right and wrong. Claudius, you can't imagine him doing that sort of thing. What he does instead, he's threatened with a Norwegian invasion. What does he do? He sends the ambassadors to the king of Norway who's not well. He's bedridden and says, perhaps you haven't noticed that your nephew, young Fortinbras, is about to invade our country. Maybe this is not your wish, and if it's not, if, if you'd care to speak to uh, Fortinbras about this, we'd be glad to arrange something else for him to do. He can, he can march through, uh, we'll give him uh, a visa, he can march through Denmark his way to attack Poland. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's, of course, what happens. Uh, the ambassadors come back, that's agreed to. It's a brilliant piece of uh, pacifist dom domestic foreign policy. Uh, as contrasted with, uh, with this old image of the sort of the Viking hero. That doesn't mean that one's better than the other. It just means that the past and the present are really very different kinds of places. Han Ed Hamlet says Denmark is an unweeded garden. And he's talking about all these things that we're talking about that, that's wrong with the sort of the moral temperature of a place like Denmark at the moment, which he can't stand. One of the other things that he can't stand, to go back again to marriage and love, is this proposal that it wouldn't be appropriate for him to marry Ophelia. I, I don't mean to say that I think he really is seriously thinking about it. I, he's, he's a realist enough to realize that that wouldn't go down very well and it wouldn't serve the purposes of foreign policy and all the rest that goes with it. But damn it, <laughs> you know, he's, uh, it seems to me at least the play makes better sense if he really is attracted to Ophelia and he's not simply trying to get in bed with her. I, 
to my innocent view. I, I think he's really, in fact, he's quite a puritanical young man in many ways. He's, he's drawn to her and she to him. And there is that moment, it's kind of a Romeo and Juliet story, except it's more serious, as I was saying, the, the, the kind of a, a love relationship that, that seems really quite promising in that it really base, is based on mutual, genuine attraction of people who, even if they're socially different, still come from the same sort of social set, the, the court, and who enjoy each other's company, and uh, he writes her sonnets, and not very good ones, he says, but at least he's writing her poems and so on. So what's, what's wrong with that? Well, again, it's not going to happen, and that's, I think, from Helmut's point of view, a part of what's wrong with Denmark, and I, and I think persuades us that, that a great deal of that is true, that, that's, that's, uh, that there are so many things that are, that are just at, um, at ill, at ease with this world that we see. Now, let me move over to... Um, Friendship. Um, part of my thesis here is that friendship really, a good friendship, really replaces romantic or heterosexual love uh, in this play in a way that you do not get in the early romantic uh, comedies, but that you do get, for example, in King Lear, where the lo love and also the loving loyalty of servants to masters, the, s the fool is uh, so loyal to... King Lear, Kent is so loyal to King Lear, Gloucester as being, uh, being uh, really helped by his own son, the son he's tried to disinherit, Edgar, but who is loyal to his father. And uh, so servants and sons and daughters, um, even if it's problematic, are seen as, there are some, of course, we have Gone and Regan, who are, again, the obvious opposite and terrible image of that in King Lear. But, um, but it's this kind of relationship which seems to, to come up to the surface as, as heterosexual love seems no longer to be involved. What's going to happen at the end of the play? Who's going to reign the kingdom? Who will marry whom? Well, there's no marriage in prospect. And at the end of uh, you know, the 19th century, 18th, 19th century, didn't like that, so they changed the story, and they had Cordelia survive and marry Kent, or uh, Edgar, I guess, and, uh, uh, and, and on you go to a happy ending. Because they didn't, the 19, 18th, 19th century weren't comfortable with that kind of image of, of the play. But more now, in terms of friendship, we get the same contrast between uh, positive and really very disturbingly unhappy kinds of relationship, or unattractive, un unappealing kinds of love friendships. Now, uh, uh, again, it's very useful to go back to Polonius when we want to talk about the more worldly and uh, uh, and disappointing and disillusioning view of friendship. Uh, those friends thou hast, he says to Laertes, as Laertes is about to go off to Paris, those friends that thou hast and their adoption tried, grapple them to thy soul with hopes of steel, hoops of steel, but do not uh, bell thy, 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 thy sword by with too much uh, uh, with entertainment of people who are not worth being uh, your, your friendship. Have one friend or maybe one or two the court is a very dangerous place, and people, the hypocrisy and false promises and to be, to be encountered on every side, uh, I think that's the bottom line of what Polonius is saying and from his own experience. And so if you can find somebody you can really trust, that's wonderful. But then Polonius goes on to say, but in the, with the rest of the world, costly thy habit as thy purse can buy, Rich not gaudy for the apparel off proclaims the man. This this uh, wonderful point about uh, what you wear that is often trotted out as if it were some sort of lesson on how to go to the right clothing store and buy the, buy the best suits and so on. Of course, that's not what the play seems to be suggesting. We're really invited to 
little, little disappointed to see someone that important at court who takes the view that what courtly appearances are like, what friendships are like, is how to influence and influence people, right? How to score points, how to uh, collect IOUs. Now again, Claudius is very good at that sort of thing. Part of the way in which he's an, an admirable diplomat, and, and not just diplomat, he's an able ruler. There are people in this court who think he's the best thing that's happened for a long time. I, Polonius is one of them. This is a man, I perhaps, um, you know, Claud Polonius obviously doesn't want Hamlet, young Hamlet to be king. That would be, that would be a disaster from his point of view. But what he has with Claudius, of course, is you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. He's, and, and Polonius uh, and Claudius both know how to play that game of collecting IOUs. When Laertes comes in in the second scene to ask for permission to go off to Paris, he has to get a kind of an exit visa from the king because he belongs, he's close to the royal family, but mainly because, I think, because Claudius likes to collect IOUs that way. It, 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 he drops Laertes about six times when he's addressing, what's the what thou have, Laertes, that shall not be, um, not thy asking, but my granting. Um, a good politician knows how to use the name frequently in conversation. And he just makes a big deal. He says, your father, this place wouldn't run without your father. I, I, everything to him. And if he says, you're going to go to Paris, I say, let you go to Paris. It's, I'm going to do this for my buddy, uh, Polonius. <laughs> uh, we just see this man working the crowd. He's brilliant at that. Um, and uh, we don't know whether Hamlet Sr. was like that, but we know that Hamlet himself is not, right? He, He's capable of very bad manners, of offending people right and left, including Polonius, insulting people with wonderful witticisms, but not as not the way of sort of winning political allies that you might have to to come on your side when the when there's a crisis at court. So um, that's what friendship means to Polonius, and uh, to an important extent, I think, to Laertes. Perhaps at least he's being trained to grow up that way. When you go off to Paris, you know, pick your friends very carefully, dress well, make a good impression, make people think well of you. It's all right if you go off to the bordello and so on, enjoy yourself. I know boys will be boys and so on. Just don't get caught. Don't worry. It's worrying about reputation. That's what friendship is all about. So there is that rather sad, disappointed image of friendship, not only in Laertes and the family, but in, the, in Claudius himself, in his relationship to Polonius and to uh, all his courtiers, really. Now, the, the opposite is seen in Hamlet's relationship to uh, Horatio. And, of course, we meet Horatio right at the start of the play. He's the one who talks to the ghost. He's the one who knows the whole story about the, the, the threatened Norwegian invasion. He's... Um, and he's obviously deeply fond of Hamlet. He, he's there. He wants to tell Hamlet what he's seen. Um, the guards pick him to come and talk to the ghost because they know that he has that special relationship. They've been, of course, in Wittenberg together as fellow students. Now, that's an interesting thing about their relationship, isn't it? Because uh, they also love to argue and even, even quarrel, certainly to disagree. They love the fact, both of them, that, that Laertes is more of a skeptic. He's the one who says when the ghost is reported to be about to show up again. He says, Tush will not appear. You know, it's new. I don't believe in ghosts and so on. And when he sees a ghost, well, you know, a good pragmatist, a good empiricist has to take uh, the evidence of his senses. He sees a ghost and he said, before my soul, I would not this have believed without the sensible avouch of mine own eyes. He's the, it's the person who really has to uh, 
like Doubting Thomas in the biblical story, has to touch Christ's wounds in order to be able to believe that they're, that they're there. That, that comes up again and again in the play. He said, um, when, there's, when the story is repeated about um, the cock crowing at, at Christmas time, and the father for a, a day is blessed, and, um, and no ghosts can walk abroad at night when that, when that happens, and so on. He says, so I have heard, and do in part believe it. <laughs> he, uh, um, he listens to, he's not a, an atheist. He, but he does, he, um, he crosses himself when he sees the ghost, angels defend us, and so on. Uh, he's a believing man, but he uh, wants very much to be a kind of a humanist in terms of his approach to scientific truths. Now, one of the ways in which this is most um, beautifully brought up, but when he um, when he sees the ghost in the presence of Hamlet, and he says, uh, "Day and night, but this is wondrous, strange." And Hamlet uh, Hamlet's response is, "What?" There are more things in the heaven and earth ratio than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And by your philosophy, he means the philosophy that you scientists talk about. And philosophy means scientific learning. It means the whole body of learning. And it's often used in that sense of really sort of uh, knowledge of the natural world. But, uh, so he loves the fact that Horatio is a kind of that kind of skeptic, skeptic. Not, not a disbeliever, but a... Um, someone who uh, wants to test everything in terms of uh, the guise of the guidance of human reason. Hamlet loves that. Um, he wants to argue with his friend. He wants to persuade his friend that there are indeed more things in heaven and earth than you have dreamt of in your philosophy. But he also wants to listen to what Horatio has to say, and that uh, thereby really hangs a tale. The, the big moment of the play in these terms, I think. And it really does define friendship in Hamlet's terms. It's a selfless, uh, ennobling, enlargement of the spirit in relationship with something shared and secret and wonderful with another human being who is a friend. This is just before the play within the play is, is going to be put on. And Horatio is there, of course, with Hamlet. They have a moment together. They have talked about this before. It's a very important, of course, that Hamlet has told Horatio the story of 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 his father's murder, as he's told nobody else of the guards may know something of this. But Horatio is really the only person who's totally in on Hamlet's secret. And he talked to him. I said, I want to I want to have a way of testing to see whether Claudius is really guilty because I, I don't want to go and killing somebody if he's not the real offender and the devil can tempt you to, to, into strange ways. And I know I've been very emotionally upset. Perhaps I've been misled. So he wants to be careful about that. That again sounds very much like a ratio. That let's be practical, let's test things, let's be empirical about the claim of madness, about the claim of murder. So he devises the play within the play as a kind of a test, and Horatio um, essentially endorses that as a very clever way of seeing whether Claudius is guilty or not. And as they're waiting for the play to go on, Hamlet, um, I really should read this to get the language all exactly right. It's just before the play within the play swings into action. Um, Sorry, I should. Um, 
I've marked it, but I've marked some other things too. I'm sorry, not the. Um, it's really stupid. Um, I'll paraphrase it if I don't find it in just another moment here. I guess I won't. He says, um, or his friend, he says, Ratio, um, you know, you're really a remarkable friend. Um, I need somebody like you. I need someone who, in suffering all, can suffer nothing, whose fortunes, buffets, and rewards has taken with equal thanks. And blessed are those that are so tempered in their view of fortune that, that they are not to be beckoned by fortune's finger, which way she please. This is really, uh, Shakespeare's very good at little thumbnail definitions of certain philosophical positions. And this one is, is classical stoicism, as Shakespeare understood it, and I think understood it really quite well. And the point is, it's, you know, stoicism we often take to be that idea that um, when, the, when, when the going gets tough, the tough, the, the, uh, when the going gets tough, then the tough get going. That you, uh, you have to be hard and expect the worst. Part of the more complete view, which he expressed, he says to Horatio, you, you, you are indifferent to, to, to fortune's buffets and rewards. You must learn to handle fortune, the, this bitch goddess, by not caring whether she smiles on you or not. You have to be indifferent to good fortune as well as to bad fortune. That really is a very nice, complex definition. And, uh, and he sees Horatio as one who is just like that. He sees in Horatio's passivity, again and again they are seen on opposite side in these terms, Horatio is the one who stands by and watches what Hamlet's going to do, offers him advice and so on, but is not uh, involved in taking patent action. Ha ha Hamlet is called on to take a patent action in the play, and that's a problem to sort out how to go about doing that. And it's very interesting that in considering what to do about his father's murder, that the counsel, or at least the model of Horatio, stands out to him very strongly as a positive and beautiful idea to take fortune's buffets and rewards with equal thanks. Um, and they do not like a pipe for fortune to play up on, that image of the playing on the recorder and so on, which comes again and again throughout the play. That's so easy to do that sort of thing. And, and, and it's so easy to pretend to be a friend and so easy to play the game of courtship and friendship and at court and so on. He knows that Horatio is not like that. That's the thing they share, their utter candor, their utter in, uh, dis dislike of the kind of uh, hogwash that goes with court talk and, and, pr and pretenses of and the hypocrisies and the, uh, and the playing games and the self-fashioning and so on. It seems to be the name of what it is to be a courtier. And so Horatio is not like that. Now, uh, what, is that, what sort of counsel is that going to amount to for Hamlet in the play? Here's the paradox, and I will I'll wind things up with this uh, attempt to explain, I think, what happens toward the end of the play. Hamlet's been dealing with this problem, what to do about uh, his father's command, revenge my foul and most unnatural murder. His first impulse is to say, haste me to do it, uh, that I'm with wings as swift as meditation may sweep to my revenge. That seems quite simple at first. I'll just go kill the guy, right? But it turns out to be complicated. It, was he really guilty? Could Hamlet himself be subject to um, moody... Uh, psychological disturbances and so on, and not seeing the whole thing uh, fairly. It, more importantly, when he finally does achieve in a moment, it turns out to be uh, a seriously misleading 
moment, isn't it? This is after the play within the play, when he now is convinced, I take the ghost's word for a thousand pounds, and Horatio backs it up, agrees with him. So that uh, point has been uh, checked off. But what to do now? Well, he, he has, he's drinking, thinking hot blood, and they're going to go kill the man. But he runs across the king when, when he's at prayer, and this is a wonderful moment on stage and so on, comes up behind him with his sword all pulled out, ready to stab him right, right down through the guts and have done with the story, and he decides not to. Now, there's a number of ways of thinking about this. One is, of course, if he were to do that at this point, that it's, we'd be much less interested in the play. The play would be over. <laughs> uh, but also, he would be a murderer. I mean, that, that would be murdering in cold blood and killing someone who is defenseless. What he, what he says, in a way, is really more ruthless, more cold-blooded. He says, oh, no, I'm not going to do this as a prayer. I want to kill him when, the, when he's in my mother's bed, right? <laughs> when he's hot with lust and all the things that he will, will make him fry in hell forever. If I can kill him at that moment, that'll really do it. And my father's discovered her having gone to purgatory and so on. He deserves something that, that, uh, that grand. So he spares Claudius at that moment, and goes off to his mother's chambers where he's been invited to see her, commanded to see her, saying as he leaves, I will soft, I will, I will use daggers, I will speak daggers, but I will use none. I will uh, never the soul of Nero enter my, my, my bosom. I will not do Nero's deed of killing his own mother. I'm not going to be violent to my mother, but I'm going to speak daggers to her. He goes off to her chamber. He's so... Uh, He's obviously hyper by this time, and, and uh, she scares her out of her wits, and she screams. He grabs her, and she screams, and so on. And Polonius yells out from the, uh, the curtains where he's hiding, uh, help ho, and Hamlet stabs. Now, it seems like a very reasonable thing for him to do, isn't it? This is, I take it, his fulfillment, of what at the moment he conceived of his plan to kill the man when he's in his mother's chambers, and they're about to go to bed together. It'd be perfect. And who else would be in his mother's chambers, hiding behind a curtain, but the king, right? Well, it's not. And Hamlet realizes at once that he has killed the wrong man, and that's serious. I mean, it's serious, of course, to take another, to take a human life. It's serious to have done so in such a mistaken way. And he's, what he says was that, uh, that heaven hath pleased it so to punish me with this and this with me, that I must be their scourge and minister. Those are wonderful phrases. First of all, that heaven, heaven hath pleased it so. It's his view that in some strange way, the killing of Polonius is a part of some sort of providential plan. And it's one in which punished me with this and this with me. The Polonius is being punished by, for his, by me. He's dead as a result of his snooping and so on. But I'm going to be punished too because I have killed a man and I've killed the wrong man. And there will be consequences. Now, there are, of course, consequences. In fact, the play beautifully unfolds from this moment. It's because of the death of Polonius that Ophelia goes mad, that Laertes comes back from Paris with blood in his eye, prepared to uh, kill the, the murderer of his father. And, of course, it is Hamlet. Laertes is not wrong to believe that the murder, uh, that the killing of Claudius, I'm uh, sorry, of Polonius was, was by, by Hamlet. But of course, Laertes is serious. This is another action that is very seriously misled in the play, isn't it? But he doesn't understand. The crucial thing is he's dealing with the villain of the play in, Cl in, in Claudius, who is letting him conspire against Hamlet, at the, the, um, the nominal killer of Polonius, but to, to serve um, 
Claudius's purposes. Laertes has been led into a trap, and he's led into a trap where, where he's being invited and uh, undertakes, in fact, to behave very ungentleman away. He's going to use poison on his sword. Well, gentlemen don't do that. He's going to use an unbated sword. That in itself, just in that in itself, is not uh, uh, allowable in the gentlemanly code. And one sees that in the duel when it finally takes place. And it's done well. Hamlet realizes he's been stabbed and so on, and he's, oh my god, what's going on here? He forces a change of weapons and so on, and proceeds to stab Laertes with his own sword, at which point Laertes, dying, says, I am justly killed with my own treachery. I've fallen into my own trap. He shouldn't have done that. Uh, so the, the end of the play is filled with instances, both Hamlet and Laertes, of, of actions which go wrong, uh, but perfect, perfectly understandable, but, but one not knowing the whole picture, one got into this trap of doing the wrong thing. And it's at this point, uh, toward the end of the play, after Hamlet's gone off to Denmark and Hanmark, uh, to England and come back and talks to his uh, friend, again, of course, these are the great conversations with Horatio that uh, uh, would not, not believe how ill I'll hear about my heart. And, uh, Horatio says, well, then don't do this duel. You don't have to do this. And Horatio says, no, if it, if it uh, be not now, yet it will come. If it is not to come, it will be now, and so on. That wonderful, and the readiness is all. And he talks about the providence, the special providence of a sparrow. And uh, everything that happens in this world in that providential view is in some way connected to the will of the divine. And in such a way that the divine plan is something that's immensely, immeasurably more complicated than anything we could dream up. Hamlet sees himself at the very end as having been delivered by providence into a solution to its problem which he couldn't have come up with himself. He's, um, at the end, he's, whereas before if he killed Polonius and cold, uh, Claudius, I'm sorry, in cold blood while he's praying, we wouldn't really like him as a character. That would be a huge problem for the play. At the very end, he kills Claudius almost in self-defense. I mean, he's Claudius is obviously after Hamlet, trying to murder him, and uh, and Claudius is at the moment having unwittingly killed his own wife, and he's responsible for the death of Laertes and all the rest of it. So, uh, and the, the pressure of the moment to have Hamlet attack this man, when he finally understands that the king's the king's to blame, as Laertes tells him, that he does what he has to do, and that doesn't seem like a murder. Compared with, in fact, all the re other revenge plays that were written during the period, like the Spanish tragedy and so on, this is the one in which the, the protagonist, the hero, comes off seeming, seeming less guilty than any other protagonist of a revenge play in the Elizabethan theater. And he's, it's a paradox. He's arrived at this when his father said, revenge my Faust and my foul and most unnatural murder. He's arrived at this by surrendering to the will of a Christian providence who does this for him. And it achieves not only the killing of, of Claudius under justifiable homicide circumstance, if you like. But of course, also it ends with the death of Hamlet, which is the other thing that he's longed for, is to be relieved uh, from the pain and awfulness of living in this world. Right? So it's a, the, the comedy of Hamlet. It's really just a wonderful ending. <laughs> now, the one other thing, I'll end at this point uh, with about Hamlet, uh, friendship between Hamlet and Horatio. Because Horatio lives after Hamlet, and in fact, he wants to kill himself. He says, I will do it after the Roman fashion. And, and, and Hamlet says, no, draw thy breath in pain to tell my story. He wants the story to be known. That's very important. The play will help. Legend will help. It's important that people understand who Hamlet was and why he's done the thing that he's done. And Horatio is key for that. And if he's to live on in grief and deprivation, having lost his friend and bitterness and sorrow about the way his life has gone and so on, he will have done what his friend asked him to do. He'll done this as a kind of a self-sacrifice. In addition, at the last moments of the play, 
uh, has Hamlet delivering, uh, Horatio delivers himself of a very different philosophical view of what the play is all about. Hamlet's view at the end, which we don't have to accept, is a providential one, that somehow all this fell in place because the will of providence willed it to be so. Horatio says, well, I'll tell this story, uh, because Fortinbras says, you know, please, we want to hear what you have to say about all this. That's the story of, of purpose, purposes mistook falling on the inventor's heads. <laughs> um, it's a story about falling into one's trap. It's a thoroughly secular, historical, humanistic view of history by which the darndest things happen. It's rather like the, the, the way Julius Caesar comes out, right? Full of wonderful ironies, but painful ones very frequently. It's not a providential view. So at the end of the play, and so like Shakespeare, he doesn't end this play sort of endorsing a Christian providential reading of his own story. He gives us Hamlet's belief in a providential reading, and then he gives us Laertes. In, I'm sorry, I keep making these mistakes. Horatio's view, uh, which is that of a kind of a secular, secular humanist interpretation of, of history, very compassionate one, uh, one that really recognizes the, the wonderful virtue of a man like Hamlet, the importance of decent, decent people in this world, rather Roman view again, right, like Plutarch. Um, and, but it's so different from, from Hamlet's own view that Shakespeare allows us to experience the end of the play with this sense of cross-purposes. But out of this one thing that clearly does arise, is the strength of that friendship. I mean, that's, uh, Hamlet dies in the arms of Horatio, and Horatio would be glad to join him in death if he could. Uh, all the other relationships are really, Hamlet's made up with his mother, but um, that the, the one relationship that really stands out, a little bit like say, or Cordelia's with Lear at the end of the King Lear, is this lo wonderful loving friendship, which is both a kind of a service and, and also uh, a deep uh, loyalty between friends. So thank you very much.